The Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. On the viewpoint. Last month, Dr. Craig Parker received the Rural Doctor of the Year Award at the Rural Health Conference in Otswaran. He was recognized for creating a COVID lifeline for rural areas where oxygen was not easily accessible. Dr. Parker's oxygen device, the Ox Era, saved hundreds of lives during COVID-19, particularly around rural Eastern Cape. Now the device has earned a global nod by being listed in the WHO 2022's compendium under Innovation Health Technologies for Low Resource Settings. Practicing as an anaesthetist at East London's Frey Hospital, a tertiary government hospital, Dr. Parker says he had been in the UK visiting his grandmother for her 100th birthday. The UK was then collapsing and exploding, or rather imploding, with COVID-19. He realized that if they were not coping then goodness, South Africa, as it were, was going soon to be in trouble. And he was of the view that ventilators were not going to fix our problems. To have somebody ventilated, you need a ventilator. You also need an ICU-trained nurse and space in an ICU. Lots of intention behind this project because of the challenges the public health care system experiences. He also further noted that you needed an ICU-trained doctor. Too many things to comprehend. So he came back, put out a call on Facebook for anyone who wanted to join him to try out and build a solution, and the solution was built. Dr. Craig Parker is now on the line. First of all, congratulations, Craig, for your wonderful invention, Oxera, for saving many lives, but also just the investment that this has become in saving the public health care system so much more than just the making of available this device. Tell us about the journey that got there and yours particularly because the production team tells me originally you come from across the Limbobo border. <laughs> Hi, Sangeta. Yeah, thank you for, for having me on the show and, and thanks very much. Um, yes, yeah, so originally from, from across the Limpopo. You are born in, born in Zimbabwe uh, many years ago, but um, grew up in KZN, Gungunklovo, uh, so that, uh, that's where I consider home. Um, Although I must say the Eastern Cape has, has managed to worm its way into my heart, so uh, I guess home is where you make your mm-hmm. uh, home where your heart is. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about your experiences at Freya Hospital. I mean, being one who spent a lot of time in East London, I'm quite familiar with the environment in which you operate, and the fact that Freya is now servicing, if you like, the majority of public health care patients who can't be tended. In the greater border region, which extends into the Transkei region as well, many people come to Freya to access particular services or, or, or medicines. Just, just give us a, an overview of the environment in which you are operating as a medical practitioner. Sure, so it's it's challenging. Um, I think I think it's fair to say it's 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 challenging. Um, we find ourselves uh, quite quite constrained post-COVID. So budgets are tight, uh, staffing levels are, are, are short, and we have a growing population that we need to serve. So, uh, so everyone has to sort of on a daily basis really try and, um, uh, you know, try and go that extra mile, try and find a way to 
to work within those constraints to try and deliver services to the the people that we serve. But it's it's challenging. I think uh, you know not just here, but but across the country, people are people are feeling it. You know, um, there seems to be uh, just uh, you know more and more budget constraints, more and more challenges in terms of procurement and supply and getting suppliers paid, etc. And those are those are things that impact us daily in our ability to to get done what we need to do. But it's amazing what a committed team can accomplish within that. And so we've got excellent uh, excellent surgeons, excellent doctors here, excellent nurses, and uh, everyone really doing their best um, under, under sometimes quite trying circumstances. Talk to us about the need now for us to be more innovative precisely because of the issues that you have raised as challenging ultimately the service offering of the public health care system to me and you and everybody else who's listening who would be a patient in the circumstances. How, how, how important is it then, not necessarily for medical practitioners as you have, but just for the system to be a little more agile, to be less rules constrained because the public sector is unfortunately an inst- a creature of rules, to facilitate for better clinical outcomes and service offering to the client and perhaps adopt a method of working backwards from there, which won't necessarily be impeded or constrained by the rules, because that seems to be the constant refrain by those in public health care service. So, I'm not sure it's, it's necessarily the, the, the difficult rules environment. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's that. I think we just, we, we, we're competing for scarce resources. Um, I think... Treasury has a difficult job deciding, you know, they've got one cake and they need to feed uh, you know, more, more people than can be fed with that one cake. So education uh, is, 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 will have the same challenges and the same complaints, I think. So it's, I think it's more of a, it's a more fundamental issue than, than, than just rules. We need to manage the funds we get properly and, uh, and sort of the, the rules, I think, are in place to do that. Uh, but it's, I think it's more fundamental than that. I think we just, um, we just don't have enough capacity in terms of funds and, and then skills. And, and that relates back to funds. You know, there's, not, uh, there's not enough staff. So, so staff positions are frozen because there's no funds. And so we, we then don't have the capacity to, to deliver on, on, on our procurement processes, on our um, delivery and stocking processes. Uh, so that, that, I think, is the problem, more than, more than the rules mm, being there. Mm. Okay, Let, let's talk about your product now, Oxera. Let's talk about its genesis. Let's talk about its impact. And let's talk about its longevity within the public health care system now that it has done what it has. Great. So, forgive us. Team effort. <laughs> well, um, I'm very grateful I received the, the Doctor of the Year Award. I'm, I'm you know, I must make note that it wasn't it wasn't a solo effort. Uh, it might have been largely, uh, you know, my ideas in the beginning, but it would not have been possible without the large team that um, that sort of gathered around me. So I must thank them. Um, and and yeah, so it was it was an incredible time for us during COVID, uh, you know, to be able to do something useful and uh, to be able to help people. And and yes, beyond COVID, we we finding that our devices are still useful for for quite a variety of things so certainly managing people who are 
affected with respiratory diseases similar to what COVID would cause. In a well, well tell us specifically about the device. I mean, sort of what agitated you in that regard? I mean, I know I made reference to the fact that you were in the UK and your sort of your antenna were sort of spiked by what you saw and the possibilities of what mayhem could be occasioned in South Africa if that experience in the UK was anything to go by, how you assembled a team and put this thing together, the trialing that you engaged, and sort of the utility, not just for oxygen purposes, but how this could be a medical device beyond, for instance, the challenges of COVID. Sure, sure. So I I felt that we needed to do something build build something that was going to be able to be used by an, an average nurse in a ward environment so that was uh, that, that sort of really underpinned what we did um, I I knew I could do it on my own so I put out a call it was actually on Facebook here in East London and and uh, very quickly had a team of volunteers around around me most of them engineers who said how can we help uh, we, we're with you on this and so we started uh, down the journey of, of, of what could possibly work. It initially started around a diving uh, regulator, you know, if you were going to go uh, deep sea diving, a, a sort of a, a system around that uh, evolved then into a sort of blower-based system. And, um, and ultimately, we got quite far down the road with a, quite a sophisticated system that you know, gave the patient a little bit of pressure support when they breathed in. Um, and then allowed them to breathe out against some resistance. But in testing, that, that system didn't actually work very well. Uh, and uh, a much simpler system that, we'd, that I'd been sort of playing around with in ICU as well, when we tested that, we were, we were really quite blown away by how, how effective it was. So our, our most simple solution that, that, that we sort of came up with ended up being the most effective one. Um, so it was, uh, it was quite surprising. It, was, it, took, it took us all a bit off guard there. Um, so it's really just a very, very simple, simple device. It's, a, it's an anesthetic mask that, says, you know, fits snugly on the patient's face. There's a bag that accumulates oxygen, uh, and then there's a little a, a valve that you can adjust that adjusts the pressure that the patient breathes out against. And those those three things together in, in, a, in a small sort of package, uh, amazingly effective for for COVID, and we're finding for other things as well now. Like. Like pulmonary edema. So if somebody's got water on their lungs, from um, often happens with pregnant ladies who are uh, have uh, high blood pressure during pregnancy, severe high blood pressure, they end up with uh, this sort of severe pulmonary edema. We found it to be effective for that. We found it useful for transferring patients from ICU who are on high-flow nasal oxygen or non-invasive intubation, and they need to go for a CT or they need to be transported by ambulance somewhere. They can do that often quite effectively on one of our devices. Um, even for before and after operations, uh, optimizing patients, we've, we've found it useful for that. So, so lots, of, lots of things. And every day there's a new application for it that's popping up. Let's talk about the scalability of this device. I mean, first of all, before we go there, how were you able to get it to be used in the public hospital setup? I mean, sort of what hoops did you have to jump through so that it could be something that is recognized and doesn't, if you like, attract liabilities for it not having gone through the normal channels. Right, so that's an important point. Uh, The medical device world is is very regulated in South Africa. It falls under SARPA, 
and so we had to um, we had to get licensing for the product. So we teamed up with a company called Gabler Medical in Cape Town, who who are a manufacturer and a distributor of medical devices. So they then uh, obtained the license and they manufacture and distribute the product. So we had to do it all all above board, all all legally. And uh, that licensing came through towards the end of 2020, early December 2020. Mm. And, and that then meant that uh, people could buy and order it and, and use it, uh, a fully licensed product for COVID. Let's talk about its utility now in the public health care service, given the fact that it's not just a COVID-specific device, but a, a device that clearly engages the pulmonary system and other aspects as well. Are, are you seeing a, a demand? Are you seeing the potential for that demand, if not the demand itself? And, and, and how does this change the game in relation to access to health care? In other words, this device is not an expensive one. It can be rolled out pretty quickly. It has its genesis in South Africa, so presumably the manufacturing cycle and its inputs would be based in South Africa, East London in particular. How does this um, propose to change the game? From an access to healthcare perspective and limiting the costs, right? So, so yes, it's. I think a, a big cost which is often hidden is the the cost of oxygen. So, uh, the start there, and then the fact that patients can be treated with much lower oxygen flows is already a, a massive saving. I mean, uh, it, you know, fifteen hundred rand a day, you know, and, and upwards potentially. So that's that's a that's a big saving. Uh, the device is not not expensive compared to other things. Um, you see, we, uh, you know, as we as the sort of volumes get up, and uh, you know, we're hoping the pricing will will get better and better as as time goes by. Um, yeah, it's locally made, locally manufactured, and um, and 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 freely available. Uh, a lot of our Eastern Cape clinics uh, have them, but post COVID, the volumes are are generally lower. You know, you it's just something you need in 20, 30 patients a day on it. Um, it's one of those sort of back emergency things which is going to, I think, play an important role. Probably slightly lower, or certainly lower volumes than COVID, but, but not at, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be as, as uh, ubiquitous as a... Mm-hmm. As a normal oxygen mask, for example, those are those are a dime a dozen, and they're going to, you know, that's the first thing patients are put on, and most patients will be okay on that. This is for the the ones that need that extra bit of care, and uh, and I think so. I think they'll, you know, certainly um, will will be affordable with add value in that space in in the public sector and give patients access to uh, to the care that they need wherever they need it. Yeah. Now, of course, you are in line to win a major global award for you have been recognized at the WHO specifically for saving lives in rural Eastern Cape. Give us an impression as to exactly where the rural aspect of your device was able to reach and some of the anecdotes that you can tell us without necessarily compromising patient doctor privileges. Sure. So I, I think our biggest uh, it, Area where where we saw an impact was, uh, if I can use Madrilini Hospital, in uh, in, 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 in sort of deep rural Eastern Cape as an example. Uh, they were at the end of a very long dirt road, uh, difficult access for the oxygen trucks. So during COVID, they were sending their own bucky a couple of times a day through to the Mtata depot to try and get as many cylinders as they, as they could. 
they were just really struggling and having to make decisions and decide every day who who gets oxygen and who doesn't, you know, um, because they were so constrained. And when uh, when we were able to to, to donate them some oxeras, um, then suddenly they they didn't have to start deciding. Um, you know, sort of rationing it out in terms of who could make one person could maybe get high flow and then and then you'd have to switch three or four other people off. They could now treat them all, um, and so so they saw a, a huge improvement in in patient support and outcomes there. And not only just patient improvement, but the doctors and the nurses then had another option. So they they had a bit of hope then in terms of in terms of being able to treat their patients. We then uh, we saw them used in, in places like Dutchwa, um, Butterworth, in our in our sort of referral areas, where where really the uh, capacity was low for uh, for anything other than simple oxygen masks. So for them to be able to offer another level of care made uh, made a big difference. And then surprisingly, even here at Freya, which you would consider as a massive you know big tertiary hospital, mm. there were times when we had. 50 patients admitted on an on an evening, and you know where do you put 50 patients? The wards are full, and so they were stuck in casualty. And the only way the sickest of those could be treated and managed was on an oxera. There was just wasn't enough flow available for anything else. And uh, so we used them massively here at at Freya even, uh, despite us not being in, you know a rural facility. So they were really used throughout. Uh, throughout it in the Eastern Cape, and then as people got to know about it, uh, further and further afield. Mm. How much time did it take to test this thing, and, and, and to what extent would the testing would have involved somebody who actually needed oxygen? And tying up to that question, was there any training or onboarding of the practitioners themselves to trust this thing, to be able to work this thing, and to administer it on the patient? So we we did all the initial test work on ourselves as as healthy healthy volunteers, um, but we got to a point where we we had we had nothing. Um, we had run out of capacity even here at Freya, and so it was in those early days that we 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 did uh, provide some samples to people. And as they used them, as soon as they used them and saw how effective they were, um, you know, explaining to patients that this was this was a new device and, and worth a try. Um, so it really was in the, the sort of proof of the pudding. So, so you know, all people had to do was use it on one or two sick patients that they weren't they weren't winning with um, with a normal mask, and and they were won over. I mean, it's extremely simple to use. Um, really, anyone can use it. So it's not uh, not complicated. It's also safe because if the oxygen runs out, there's a, a an anti-asphyxiation valve on it that allows the patient to still breathe. So it really was. Um, uh, they're no more difficult to put on than a normal oxygen mask, uh, but but massively more effective. So that that was sort of that was the only um, sort of encouragement people needed was just to, to try it on one patient and then and then they were sold. Um, but it really yeah it took that that was in the sort of latter half of 2020 when uh, we were busy getting our software licenses and everything sorted out. So that that phase didn't last very long. Thankfully, we were able to get our licensing sorted out quite quickly um, but until then yeah it was it was on a sort of people people requesting units from us to try and and to use because they they were just completely stuck without anything else to use 
Final comment now, of course, you courted the attention of the World Health Organization. Tell us more about this global recognition and when the final prize will be announced and what we can do to support, if anything. So uh, I'm not sure there's a final prize. Um, There's a WHO issues a compendium every year on, um, on, on innovative medical devices that they think the developing world should look at and consider. And it's quite a, it's quite a, a well-subscribed uh, document. I think they get sort of 300 applications a year of people wanting their devices to be included in that. They invited us. They actually reopened the application. They invited us and said, please, we, we, we like the look of your device. Please apply, which we then did. And, uh, and, yes, so we were included in this year's compendium as one of the technologies that they, they said we, you know, needs to be looked at and, and, and followed because it shows lots of promise for, for this, this uh, the low-resource setting. Um, so, yeah, there was about 10 or 12 different devices and technologies across the board uh, in that compendium. So we were very, very excited to be included in that. It's a... Uh, a sort of a global board of experts who look at these things. So to get the nod from them was uh, was really exciting. That we you know we were onto something. We were onto something here. It's a it's a new class of device. It, it, uh, there's nothing like it that exists. Um, mm. And so it's, it's something completely sort of innovative, if you like. And um, and people are sitting up and taking a note, taking notice. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Craig Parker. Doctor operating from Freer Hospital. My producers really are interested. How do doctors and engineers sit in the same room and come up and out with a medical device? I mean, that's just a throw throwaway line. I don't know if you want to take a bite at that. <laughs> well, I guess they had somebody with one foot in each camp uh, there as well. You know, so my background is engineering. I don't know if uh, you didn't, didn't mention that. Um, I spent 20 years working as an engineer before I became a doctor. So. I guess that helps, uh, being able to speak, uh, put different hats on sure. and speak, speak the different languages. Yeah. I have to ask this question, and pardon me for the political tone it will take, but I'm, I'm minded to ask this question because we had a conversation that got largely heated three, four weeks ago about the question of the Zimbabwe, um, the, the, the ZEP, the, 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 the permit story. I just forget what the E stands for. But specifically, how you feel as a Zimbabwean in South Africa, making the contributions that you are making, the the, the rhetoric that is coming out of South Africa and her reception or not of Zimbabwean citizens, how does that make you feel, more especially given the nature of the conversation you and I have just had and your personal investments in South Africa? Yeah, so I I think... You know, we, we've largely, <laughs> it's hard not to get political about it, but, you know, we've, we've stood on the sidelines and watched what's happened in Zimbabwe for many years now. So uh, I think, uh, you know, we've watched Zimbabwe crumble uh, and uh, economically uh, brought to its knees. And, and we just watched. So now to, to not be willing to be part of the solution and uh, in terms of supporting Zimbabweans, I think is, is very unfair. Um, so, so yes, I think we we need to open our hearts to our you know we're um, you know you know Ubuntu and our and our neighbours and, and 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 embracing them. I think it's time we started living that. You know, it was uh, Zimbabwe um, played a, a role in South Africa's 
even you know in the anti-apartheid struggle you know so so how do we is this how we thank them for that <laughs> I, I don't think so i think we can do better as a country certainly i think so too dr craig parker engineer craig parker thank you so much for your time and all the best with your work in the eastern cape god knows we do need that in the public health care system of that part of the world all the best thank you so much thanks for job 2132 that is the hashtag health on monday conversation with craig partner Craig Parker, I beg your pardon, talking to us about his oxygen device, the Oxera, which saved hundreds of lives and will continue to be particularly useful in medical health care in South Africa. Let's take a short break now before we get into another story this evening.